Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Well, it certainly feels good to be back in the podcasting seat, Blake. Woo! We're already here. <laughs> we are back. It's episode 112. Uh, today is November 26, 2018. We're back from uh, the Thanksgiving here in the States. Uh, we do that thing, the Black Friday. Today is Cyber Monday. Happy Cyber Monday to you. It's such a weird concept to me still, Cyber Monday. I know. It's where you meet random strangers on the internet, and let's not talk about that. So, Ooh. hey, <laughs> I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Blake Arnsdorf. Uh, we got some stuff to talk about today. There's a lot of news happening while we were on our, I guess, two-week hiatus, one-week hiatus. I don't know. You and Elise did a fantastic job while I was out, and then we had the week off for yeah. Thanksgiving. Uh, so it's it's been a hot minute since we've been in this seat, but we're here. We're going to break down some news stories, including um, this story about AI chatbots to give people that have died an afterlife or life after death. Uh, we're going to take a look at how virtual reality could transform prototyping. And uh, Google <laughs> Google's made this patent for these omni- omnidirectional VR sneakers. Uh, Ooh, that's so crazy I'll have a, to me. I'm going to have a good time with that one. And then uh, we got... The world's first research center to improve Canadians' air travel experience. Well, yes. I love that one. Uh, But first, we have to get into some stuff. Welcome, new listeners. Uh, We took a break, and now we're back. So welcome. Um, You can find us on YouTube uh, every Tuesday. There's a little bit of a delay. Like, subscribe, do all that. I'm tired of begging for it. We need need 100 people. We We need need 40 more. Oh, we're we're that close. Yep. Are you sure? Because you you made a you made a. a, a I'll double check, but I'm pretty sure that that we're close. Um, hey, if you took a listen to our HFES 2018 coverage in our time off because you had nothing better to do, uh, we do have an audience survey. Uh, link is in the description. We're still trying to figure out whether or not you like those things, whether or not you want to hear more of our traditional um, coverage of those events. 40 more. 40 more. All right. I, I need 40 of you listening. We know how many of you listen to the show. We need 40 of you to go hit that subscribe button on YouTube. That would help us out. Um Let's see here. What else we got? Oh, yeah. Thanks for launching off that HFES uh, membership giveaway. Oh, yeah. I'm super excited about that one. Yeah, me too. So that's uh, that's an annual membership to HFES. That means you'll get the journal. That means you'll get access to all the online resources on the HFES website, uh, connections to others, uh, and discounted rates to the annual meeting as well. So, Oh, I forgot that I was even a part of it. That's hey, awesome. look at that. It's almost as if I have them prepared in bullet notes here. No, and you don't. I don't. You know all these things <laughs> off the top of your head. You're a good HFESer. Hey, check that out. And additionally, um, the link to that is in the description. There's a variety of ways to enter. You can join us on the Slack. If you're already a Slack member, just go ahead and say, I'm already a member and provide us with your name. Uh, you can leave us a review. You can follow us on Twitter. There's a bunch of different ways that you can enter. Please go check that out. Uh, I feel like that's a pretty high ticket item. We're working closely with HFES to make sure that happens for you. Um, so please go check that out. That's cool. I, I like that. It's awesome. And I think that ends uh, soon-ish. I think it's mid-December that we're closing it out. I think the 15th is when we're going for 16th. So that way we can announce 16th. it on the 17th. Yeah, that's Perfect. that sounds right. Uh, anyway, time is running short, so you got half a month to go in and enter that thing, so please do. Uh, you know what's coming up this week, Blake? What is? You know. I do? HFES Australia. You got it. Yeah. That's so be so fun to talk to a so good friend of ours. Our uh, good buddy Mateo's out there getting all the deets from HFES Australia. He's going to be on the show um, in a separate episode. We'll do a separate kind of bonus episode to kind of cover all the fun stories that are coming out of HFES. 
um, in Australia this year out of Perth. Uh, but it's never too soon to start looking forward to some other things. So we got the healthcare symposium coming up next year, which I'm hoping that we'll get, we'll be able to go. Maybe Me too. Yeah, I'm hoping so. We're well, trying to set some stuff up. It looks like trying to figure it out. Uh, <laughs> we also got IEEE, Kai, you name it. There's a billion of our conferences out there. Please go check them out. Find something that interests you and go. Uh, it's always a ton of fun to go. And if you're going to something, let us know. We're happy to, uh, at least have you on the show so you can talk about your experience. Um, so yeah, thanks. Uh, we're back from Thanksgiving, and uh, Blake, I want to know what's going on with you. Man, so much traveling <laughs> over the past week. I flew. I felt like I flew all over Florida and every place in its mom. But I, I have to say, the reason I got excited about this uh, last story that we have, so trying to improve Canadians' travel experience. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to be something taken up by that particular group that's doing research, but I found doing the electronic boarding pass for. I'm not going to mention the airlines because I don't feel like that's fair. But I felt like the steps and the process that are built into like this uh, little touchscreen interface you have to deal with, I counted. And before I could actually print and get to my boarding pass, I had to go through 20 separate screens. 20 separate screens to print out your boarding pass. Yes. And, that, and I think part of it... So it was easy. It, yeah, it was really easy. <laughs> I could probably do it with my eyes closed. No, it, it was just one of these things where it's, it's funny. It's funny to see where... Like as a human factor person, or probably even as a UX designer or UX researcher, where you run into these instances in the real world where it's like it's something you don't work with, something you're not really super involved with, but you see an opportunity for something to be fixed, and you wonder how do you even get get your feedback out there. Right. So that's that's one thing that I enjoyed, but was frustrated by during the holidays was the entire travel experience has still got a lot of work to do, but especially the interfaces that you have to work with in order to even just get your boarding passes or any of that stuff. I we have a colleague um, who travels frequently. Sure. And whenever they experience problems with some sort of interface issue or issue with the whole travel experience, they write a user story and send it in as feedback. So they say, as a user, I would like to get to my border pass, board, <laughs> boarding my pass, border pass, my boarding pass in three steps or less, yeah. so that I can quickly get my boarding pass and board my plane yeah um so they they go on and write a full user story for something like that so maybe that's a way you that's can probably the way feedback. to go because i did i nerded out on my last day because i was traveling by myself and i sat there and like counted and wrote down what the screens were that i had to go through to, yeah. in order to even like print my boarding pass and get like the little tag for my bag which is a whole another user story you could write about yeah so i mean like i think that helps potentially the ux person behind the scenes too because they can come to it and say look they they like wrote the user story right for me they've like, already done it for me they've done it here you go can we just put that in and this is probably one of the rare instances i feel like that you would be able to submit feedback like that and it might potentially get to the right person and sure they can start trying to make changes so that's actually a really great yeah, idea. especially with this fourth story we'll we'll talk about that but, Woo! uh so nick what have you been up to <laughs> so you and elise um did a great job covering you also talked about voting i I don't even want to get into that. Um, it's very but frustrating the ballot, for me. Yeah. Yeah. The ballot thing still blowing my mind. It, it, it astounds me. There's like national guidelines for that stuff, but there's no standards. Oh, uh, um, yeah. That seems to be a problem. So that feels like something that maybe should be tackled. Um, but it, it was funny for me doing a re retrospective on it, right? Because a lot of people were kind of up in arms about like California, or not California, Florida had to do a recount because yeah. they're having problems with their ballot. But yeah. I, when I was filling mine out, I was like, I could see why this happens. This is not the most straightforward no. thing to fill out. And you can make mistakes with a pen very easily. So 
don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to comment on that. Um, but you guys did a fantastic job holding down the fort while I was gone. Um, I kind of, after that, went off the grid. I, like, not completely off the grid, obviously, but I completely neglected my emails and notifications on my phone and just kind of went heads down and played games uh, for two weeks. Um, and it was fantastic. Uh, what all did you play? Uh, well, I played a lot of Red Dead, and of course uh, you did. a new Pokemon came out, so of course it I, did on uh, Switch. Yeah. Oh man. I oh, saw and then that, Smash yeah. Brothers is coming out. I already bought some Black Friday Cyber Monday sales too. It's like ugh. that I'm really excited for. It's so much stuff to play through. But anyway, being off the grid is uh, really kind of freeing, um, and <laughs> really made me realize how dependent on technology I am on a daily basis. Like, I'm checking every news story on my RSS feed. You know, we're we're doing this podcast, so we have to interact in some form with the community. Um, so if you've noticed an absence on uh, my or on our Slack. Uh, that's why I haven't been as active. Um, and hats off to the Slack community. They've just been going. Mateo's just keeping been posting, and a yep. lot of the stories that we've actually sourced for today just is throwing down. Been yeah. through them. Um, but yeah, so so thank you all to to being active while I was not. It, it's kind of nice to kind of see something go, even when you don't have fuel to feed it. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's a good thing to do to take a break from all that stuff because I tried to do the same thing from like Instagram, email, Twitter to some degree. Even though I like we talked about, our Twitter seemed to explode over the holiday. Yeah. I don't know Thanks really why. To all the but new thank Twitter you. followers, that's awesome. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, but I think it's good for you, like getting away from all that stuff that we have to interact with, and sometimes some of it causes like stress or anxiety, depending on if it's email or like Teams. Or oh whatever, yeah, maybe there so. were there were a couple emails that came through one of which I'll describe here uh, in just a minute. But uh, there were a couple emails that came through that I were just like, ooh, don't know if I want to deal with that right now. And um, so I guess I wasn't completely off the grid. But yeah, but it's good to be off when you're off, right? Yeah. As much as you can, anyhow. So speaking of emails, this is one good email that came through. Um, and I just want to let all of you know, all of our listeners know, uh, I have kind of volunteered, stepped up. I don't know what the word for it is. I've, uh, I am now the chair of the Future Annual Meeting Committee. So the goal of this is to analyze the HFES annual meeting and kind of make recommendations to improve it with the aim to kind of utilize what HFES is doing well and also what can be improved. Um, so why am I telling you all this? Well, I was kind of approached for this, Blake, both Blake and I were, um, and we were approached because we have a direct conduit to you, our listeners. So right now I'm going to ask you guys to kind of solicit feedback. I I have all my social channels. You can reach at us at Human Factors Podcast. Basically, what I want to do is source any ideas that you guys have, the community, bring it all together into one place and kind of synthesize it into plans going forward. This is this could include like online options for different parts of the of the conference. This is something that Blake and I have talked about. You know, more attention spent on how to better suit practitioners and students, um, changes in format of some of the um, conference sessions or, or anything like that it, c- it could be anything if you have ideas let me know I'm, I'm literally going out there trying to get it from you guys because they want to hear from you they want to make this thing uh the premier event in our profession they want this the place to be and this is ux this is human factors in its best form in its most meta form i would argue because it's human factors human factors being the human factors conference oh my goodness you can through those minds the human factors podcast <laughs> with human factors practitioners i don't know it seems nick rooms on the podcast today kids it's uh it seems 
really uh, progressive to me. So please reach out. Let me know if you have any ideas. Uh, happy to source those and, and, and throw them up the chain. Um, both short and long-term goals we're looking for. So so anything. If you have innovative ideas, send them our way. Uh, and with that, Blake, do you have anything else to talk about? Just to piggyback on your questions of the community. I mean, I, I don't really have a sense of how many people that listen to the show are members of HFES or have gone to the conference, but it might be worth asking, like, why, if they aren't yeah. a part of it or have never gone to a conference, why and what would make it make it more appealing, more enticing? Absolutely, yeah. If yeah, if you don't, if you haven't gone, uh, what's stopping you? What what do other conferences do that that HFES doesn't? Yeah, uh, that's for sure. also valuable. Okay, Blake, it's it's been a while, so you know what time it is. I'm not really sure. It's been too long. That's time for Human Factors News. This is the part of the show where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. This could be aviation, VR, transportation. I almost said all the things. What else did I miss? Oh, psychology. and chatbots. Check that. And chatbots. Chat, chatbot psychology. You name it. As long as it relates to the field of human factors, it's fair game for us to talk about here on this platform. Blake, what do we have up first this week? All right, so if thousands of years of human storytelling is anything to go by, waking the dead is rarely a good idea. From ancient Greece to Black Mirror, fiction tells us that there are drawbacks in summoning loved ones from the grave. But tech entrepreneur Maris Urasache, apologize if I messed your name up, is working to turn these kinds of tales on their head and actively working to make digital copies of the dead. He actually started taking courses at MIT, which is where he got the inspiration for this grand venture called Intermine. The company hopes to make people virtually immortal by creating digital avatars of people after they die. At the moment, the startup takes the form of an app which collects data about you, and it does so in two ways. So automatically harvesting heaps of smartphone data and by asking you questions through a chatbot. The goal is obviously to collect enough data so that when you are when the technology catches up, you will be able to be created as a chatbot av- avatar after you die, which your loved ones can also interact with and feel like you're still around. So Nick, this is kind of an interesting story because this whole chatbot idea is only kind of captivated by two companies. Another one that they mentioned is a competitor called Replica, but it's actually brought up by these two specific and specific and very different individuals experiencing some kind of tragedy in their life. Right. And they wanted to kind of keep the spirit or keep some of the mind of the person alive who had died. And so chatbots seemed like a great option. Yeah. So one quick note, I think this is, this company is called Eternomy. Eternomy. Grant. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> this is, have you, have you, have you seen this black mirror episode that kind of deals with the same thing? No, I haven't, but you did, you gave a great synopsis of it earlier. Yeah. So it's, essentially this right um Haley atwell's character uh she's dating uh, uh general hux uh forget his name oh anyway um yeah i don't know his ginger name. guy older yeah older harry potter brother no clue uh domo gleason i remembered <laughs> it i didn't even look that up folks uh so anyway Haley atwell's character is dating domo gleason and he dies uh, fairly early on in the episode and she's grieving and someone mentions this uh, service that is strikingly similar to this um, whether or not chicken and egg who knows uh, but this is interesting to this this concept is interesting to explore because in the episode at least they go on to explore well what if um, you know how does a grieving person deal with life after death for somebody who was so close to them right like uh, I think in this example, they're talking about a friend, right? 
Yeah, they're talking about a good friend. But like, think about someone who's a loved one, right? And then what does that mean later on in the episode? This isn't a spoiler, I guess. I don't know. It's been out for a couple years, so whatever. If you don't want Black Mirror spoilers, skip forward 30 seconds. Anyway, so they uh, eventually, you know, the the service comes around and says, hey, we're experimenting with this new thing. You can put that chatbot in a body that's modeled after the person and you know how does how, how does basically interacting with a robot that walks talks and feels like the person that you were with you know exploring sexuality and and interpersonal connections with somebody that's not really the thing it's it's a facsimile of of what that was and so you know it's it's um it's interesting concept and there's a lot to break down i still don't know how i feel about this um yeah, and I think the second part of it is where it starts to get really fuzzy for me, right? Because you're now you're now it's just not it's not just a chatbot that you're interacting with, and being able to talk back and forth with, and right. reminisce about memories. It's when you're putting in a robot and you start almost living a new life with something that's not actually the person that you used to know. It's something different, right? It's something unexplored and new. Yeah, and what do, what does that really mean? And what does that what does that mean for human relationships, right? And that was kind of explored, but I mean, we we won't know obviously until it becomes a reality. And then you have to just start dealing with how to how to process all that kind of stuff. It's weird to think about Black Mirror in the sense of like, eh, yeah, it's future. I don't know if it'll happen, but I mean, it, it explores things that are very tangentially related to the concepts that we're experiencing in our everyday life. And um, I I just don't know how I feel about this. Like it, it was a novel concept when I saw the episode and it's still a novel concept when I'm looking at this news story and trying to really like think about it. Like what if we made a Blake chatbot and thank goodness. Can it work for me? Well, well, yeah. I mean, that's what, like, what if I, what if, what if God forbid something happened to you and I was devastated and I made this chatbot of, everything that you've ever written or texted or whatever. Thank goodness we have all the podcasts. Yeah. That would be a, a auditory blueprint of your voice. And what if the chatbot was good enough to interact with me on a podcast? It, it probably would, would be. Yeah. I mean, at least in, in the very surface level at which we tackle these things, right? Cause you're just reacting to me. Basically. Yeah. You're, you're giving some analysis and the same for me, right? Like we're, we're giving some analysis on, on the stories, but for the most part, it's just you and me talking and reacting to each other. So, a chatbot that does that same thing is not far off. So what if I had a chatbot that did the same thing? We could just port our alter How do they not know that we're not every both chatbots right now? How do they know? They don't. They don't. We could be. Because we're actually now getting sponsored by this startup. Yeah, no, that's just exactly. A joke. But it, yeah, I mean, the, the, the concept is there. It's I don't know how I would, if I would do it. Like what, First, let's explore that if. I, I don't really know. I So here here's the part that I think would be fun, and maybe it wouldn't work, but it'd be fun to interact with the four of us, right? So you and me, the human versions, it, interacting with our two chatbot counterparts on a podcast type right. of thing and seeing how, how, the inter, how listening to your own potential interactions and how they evolve over time. Because the, the way that I think about it, and this is probably going to be telling about how much my lack of knowledge in the field of like AI and machine learning, right. but I would assume that they start to kind of develop their almost kind of personality. Well, yeah, and I'd imagine there's some feedback ne- mechanism is like Blake would never say something like that. Why why did the chatbot say that? He would never say something like that. Yeah, and it, it's um, kind of like where does that get into the data set and right. how does all that information? And they referenced the 
I think the Microsoft chatbot that got a hold of Twitter from, Tay. I think it was called Tay, yeah. right? That had so many problems because of the data that it was pulling in. Racist, sexist. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know. It, 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 it would be interesting, an interesting kind of thing to do, but I, I don't know in terms of replacing somebody with it and even, even trying to do more than like reminisce with that thing. Is, it's a struggle for me for some reason. And right. it shouldn't be because, I mean, there's there's like some people that I would love if they were alive today and to like have a conversation, if you will, with them. Right. I don't think you would ever have, be able to have like deep conversations with somebody. I think it would be very surface level-y. Like, yeah. Like I think, you know, in some of the videos I was looking up for, for the sources for this episode was very surface level. Like, hey, what would you do today? You know, or, or do you remember that time we went surfing? And then they would send back a picture from that time, right? And And – that's cool and and it's i guess if it's treated correctly and you know it's it's completely transparent that this is not the person this is just a service like there's gonna yeah. be, have to be disclaimers so like because you have the issue of digital identity digital privacy that data is yours and if you're consenting to it you have to consent to being used using it after you're dead and i mean like this is this, this is a whole thing, right? Even with like actors, they, they're digitally scanning their bodies before they do movies in case anything happens to them. They're waiving their rights to their, to their physical appearance after death. So that way they can be used in uh, movies. Right. I don't know. It, it's, it's a really interesting sort of uh, legal ethical area that I, we're not going to answer on the show, but it's... Yeah, and I feel like the cybersecurity problem gets into a little bit of this, right? Because the oh. information they talk about kind of collecting is like anywhere from your geolocation, motion, activity, health app data, your sleep data, photos, messages, blah, 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 and stuff that they can collect from Facebook or other external social media sources. What if any of that stuff is altered and that changes who you actually are in this kind of chatbot world. And right. You're not necessarily the same person, but or, you're dead and you can't necessarily do anything about it. Right. Or what if somebody like, even from the cybersecurity, when you said cybersecurity, I thought this was the way you were going is if someone tapped into that system and was able to ask a loved one personal questions to get access to perhaps bank accounts or yeah. anything like that. So yeah, that's, that's all issues. Yeah. It's a lot to think about for <laughs> sure. And it, I, don't, I don't know. It's it's cool that these two kind of separate companies are tackling this problem. But as far as where it goes from here, I, I don't even really know how to answer the question or how I feel about it. Yeah, I don't either. I uh, kind of want to bring in some of the comments from the um, from the Slack if they're applicable since we did kind of pull most of these from there. I don't know if there were any on this one. Brian just says it's a heartbreaking story. Uh, it really is. Yeah, I... I just, I'm thinking about the people who are closest to me and I don't know necessarily, like I love them very much. I don't know if for me that would be a healthy relationship. I think that if they are gone, I cope better knowing that they are gone and knowing that there's not really, I don't know, man. Like I, I, I wouldn't want to use this service to talk to anybody that's dead personally yeah like that's where i'm at right now if it becomes like something as ubiquitous as online dating then that might be a hurdle that i might have to get over right like there was a huge stigma against online dating online dating when it first came out now it's like the way to meet people yeah it's it's normalized at yeah that point. and so will this follow a similar pattern if so like that's that's a big hurdle that i feel like i have to 
overcome. But like kids growing up 10, 20 years from now, that'll be part of the thing. Oh, grandma's died. Uh, we have her, her chatbot we can talk to. Um, you can say goodbye that way. Like, yeah, or you can learn about the person you never got to meet. That yeah, way exactly. And that kind of stuff. So in, on that side of it, I would, I'd be excited about it because like you could, I don't know, like I never met either one of my grandfathers. So maybe it, through something like this, although they wouldn't have the, you know, necessarily data to put into this, but right. it'd be somebody you could get to, to some degree, know through basic kind of things. Right. Just asking questions. Uh, but yeah, I kind of fall in the same camp that you do. I don't really think. I feel like there's there's something comforting where you have to rely on your own memories of a person right. once they're once they're gone, and I feel like pe- I feel like I could fall into the trap of abusing is not the right word, but becoming obsessed with this for certain people that I loved, right? They were gone. They yeah. were really important in my life. I'm going to say, let's table this discussion because I know what we're doing for infinite tonight. We're watching that episode. We're going to be breaking it down. All right. With this, with this article in mind. All right. Well, what's up next? What is up next? All right, here we go. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the United States with some studies citing numbers as high as 250,000 annually. So many studies have begun to increasingly look at the misuse and adverse events associated with medical devices. In a report from the World Health Organization analyzing the challenges of increasingly complex technology, notes that the primary reasons for adverse events with new tech are not only the result of improper training or longer learning curves, but also poor design. So it also highlights an important implication of a challenge. So medical devices are prevented from achieving their full public health potential due largely in part to design challenges or improper design. So a contributing factor to these challenges and errors made with complex medical devices is design and interface between humans and technology. This, of course, is where human factors comes in. So, however, the process of human factors within the medical device design community is relatively primitive, slow, and expensive. At its core, this type of testing is a form of prototyping and is similar to many concepts within user-centered design. The core prototyping is frequently highly iterative user testing of representations of the actual product in question. And the challenge is you're testing a product that's not necessarily finished, so there's sacrifices that need to be made in order to minimize the time and the cost that it costs between iterations. And this article talks about VR might be an apt solution for this. So I think this is a great application of VR, especially for people like us in the field, right? I mean, neither one of us work in medical technology right now, but I feel like the sake of prototyping some physical product and being able to do it more and perhaps kind of replicate the context through VR that somebody might use a physical product, I think it's only going to help our case and how we kind of, you know, bid for contracts or any of that right. kind of stuff. Uh, quick plug. We talked to Adam Brawley, the Human Factors Prize winner, we did. about uh, using VR for testing ISS tools. Yes. And I feel like that same application, if you think about it just in different fields, right? This is the application in a medical field where you can sort of interact with the thing before it's built. So that way you can understand how, you know, it's going to work or how people will use it. Um, I feel like you and Elise also talked about this from the healthcare symposium earlier this year, didn't you? Or something similar? Well, we definitely talked about the fact that, you know, the what is it medical errors in general are the lead cause of death and that medical device testing is part of the problem that's related to that like either not being able to do enough iterations or not taking into account context so we definitely talked about that um but 
Nick, you're I treat you as my resident VR expert. Because <laughs> you you know far more <laughs> than sorry, I do. That was a weird reaction. I'm sorry. Um so the the thing that I worried about when I read this article is what's is there has there been like a very good transfer rate of things like this where you're learning in a virtual environment and then you bring it into the real world? Um, it kind of. Well, Are you gonna say it? Yeah. Oh, he's it gonna depends. say it. Oh, uh, God. It depends with like, uh, well, on a variety of factors. That's <laughs> first off. Yeah. But exactly how you're interacting with the the thing, how high is the fidelity of the interaction? Right. It doesn't necessarily matter about graphical fidelity, but the interaction fidelity that's kind of important so if you're operating on let's say uh if you're using a device that um but like let's say you're using a, a joy con or something for for a or, or a um, controller or something for this interaction you can get kind of workflowy steps but you can't get how the actual device will uh work with the thing I, I'm I'm doing a lot of hand talking right is now. Is that is that like a <laughs> feel problem or a, a misunderstanding of really how the device is going to work? Like you're able to see what what you're actually making happen, but it's not right. well. It's the same as actually holding the real device or the real object. It's the uh, whole procedural memory versus um, what's the other memory? I'm drawing a blank on my memory. I want to say semantic the two, memory, but yeah, that's not right. Yeah, there's the knowledge, and then there's the how do I do it? Yeah. Those two things. I'm sorry, guys. I don't. I'm not prepared, but <laughs> I'm not a true psychologist. Um, so it, it comes down to those things, right? There's the if you have just the controller, you would get the knowledge of like this is how the thing works. But with an actual prototype, let's say you 3D printed a device um, and you mapped it to a virtual environment where the device is actually you know present and you're actually tapping it to you're actually interacting with that 3D printed prototype then you would have that procedural memory and be like, okay, well I press this button to make this thing happen and this button to make this thing happen. And um, so it, it's different, right? So that that's one way that this knowledge could transfer over. Excellent. I think one, the part that I'm interested in, and I, I don't know if this is interesting to you or any of the listeners, but no. I want to, <laughs> of course it's not interesting to Nick if it's coming out of my mouth. Uh, but the thing that I wonder <laughs> is, <laughs> If you if you actually got you could convince somebody to do this to like let you kind of build your prototypes in VR, what what's like kind of the cost cost benefit analysis of that? Would it could you prove that this is much better and much quicker um, in terms of like creating prototypes and creating stuff in relatively good fidelity? So like Nick was talking about, you have a good transfer of knowledge. Or is it just going to be just as expensive as the problems that you're seeing in places like the medical field where it's it's a slow process, it takes a lot of time and a lot of money? Because I would argue that it's going to, if you have the right professionals with you, in addition to the human factors practitioner, like helping you build these environments and build these kind of products, that it, it should really enhance your ability to create better devices. Oh, hands down, yeah. I mean, anytime you can reduce the testing costs of a device, you can test more. You can test more of that thing. Exactly. Um, and you can have more iterations without having to go through all of the um, production costs, right? You can just... Prototyping is huge, right? Because it's... There's a reason why people prototype is because you can find out whether or not something works before committing to that design it's kind of the lifeblood of what we do right and while there is resources in building like let's say a 3d model or um and or a 3d printed replica of that 3d model um i keep 
making fingers at this like imaginary device. Like, I don't know how you'd hold it, but I'm sure there are different ways. Um, I, I don't even know what I have in my head, but there, there's some device, right? And you can He's make holding that, something. You can make that different ways. And let's say it's clunky to use in the first iteration. Well, you can, you know, everyone knows iteration. You can, you can do more things with less money if you have a prototyping tool that allows you to explore how it can be used. And virtual reality is that tool. Yeah, and you might even be able to get a little more dangerous even. Like if you're doing prototyping, maybe maybe you can now do A-B testing if you get to a point in the prototyping cycle oh, yeah. where you're like, oh, well, what if I could just test these two options? If you get that far ahead of the yeah. curve, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, maybe one's better for, you know, nurses or just surgeons. I know that's a horrible example. Yeah. But like stuff like that, I, th- I feel like there's no end to the possibilities. And this is only really talking about the medical field. I feel like this could be applicable for the DOD and the military or even all the way to... Like just maybe, I'm sure probably automotive design. That's one thing that I think of when I think of this. But I yeah. sometimes I wonder if that's even going to be a problem anymore since we're going to go all super autonomous. Yeah, I I don't know, man. There's there's always going to be people who need to work on cars unless there's always going to be people that need to diagnose cars. True. Um, no matter if they're electrical or not. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's interesting. So before we move on, though, I just want to say like if if this topic interests you. I am going to plug some of our HFES 2018 coverage because we also talked to um, David Azari, who is the Alphonse Chapanis Best Student Award, Best Student Paper Award winner, and uh, he was looking at surgical performance on um, hand motions, and and that's kind of related to this topic here. Um, and also, I mentioned Adam Brawley. So, uh, if you're interested in the VR aspect or the medical aspect, I'd say those are two great interviews that you can go listen to. Uh, from our coverage of HFES 2018. Blake, do you have any other thoughts on this guy here before we move on? No, I just really want to see this being applied all over the place. I feel like it's, if if I had the chance to get involved in VR and prototyping, I would jump in hands first. Yeah, I you know me. I love I love my VR and we'll be talked to we'll be back. We'll be talked to back about more VR right after this. VR more. Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in Human Factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is Human Factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. Yeah, Patreon. Go check that out because tonight, like I said, we're going to be talking about the Black Mirror episode. We're going to be listening to that, having commentary on that. It's going to be pretty fun. Thank you to all of our friends over that. That was a rough cut. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. I just I liked I it. It was moving good. On. I was moving on. It's almost like, you know, I snipped the show. I didn't. Jeff, I didn't snip the show. Even though it sounded like it. it. I just want to thank all of our friends over at Business Insider, MDDI Online, Ars Technica, and the Canadian National Research Council for all of our news stories this week. If you guys want to follow along, you can follow us on social media or join us in Slack because that's where Mateo posts all these things, uh, at least what we pulled for this week, uh, for links to the original articles. Yes. All right, Blake. Well, what do we got up next? I I hinted at more VR. 
Yep, so we're forgetting VR treadmills and we're just going straight for VR sneakers. So if virtual reality is ever going to become the immersive holodeck platform that we all dream of, someone is going to have to figure out locomotion. Today's options for locomotion in virtual environments include omnidirectional treadmills, perambulators, <laughs> and subtle tricks to mask the Nailed. user from their actual movement in the physical environment. Well, a new patent from Google suggests that an alternative idea in the form of motorized VR shoes may be coming. So Google's patent describes what we are essentially what essentially are motorized VR roller skates that will let you let the user walk normally while the motors and wheels work to negate your natural locomotion and keep you inside of the VR safe zone. The shoe solution would track the user's feet just like how VR controllers are used are tracked today. And the tracking would know when you're too close to the virtual walls of your VR area and the system would then wheel you back into the pl- back into place. All right, so we got through perambulators. We did. Uh, but, Nick, seriously, yeah. this is – so I kind of laughed when I saw this come up in the in the feed and said it to you this morning, like, this is something we should talk about. But this is this seems like an awesome idea and way less expensive than something like an omni, omnidirectional treadmill. Yeah, I didn't laugh. This is uh, a great idea. It's a super serial for Nick. Yeah, this is great. Um, there. Okay, so – I want to tackle a couple things. Um, let's first talk about the traditional methods for interacting with VR. So you have, uh, like you mentioned, Blake, omnidirectional treadmills, which are platforms that move under your feet in reaction to the direction that you are moving. So as you move forward, the platform moves backward and keeps you in the same place. Um, with a perambulator, that is basically a concave surface in which your feet, uh, you can walk in any direction and your feet will, with low friction, basically push you back to the center of that concave surface. So if you imagine like um, like a bowl, you're basically standing in a bowl and your feet go up to the side of the bowl and come down. So you can walk against the side of the bowl and your feet will slide back down into the center. That's a perambulator. Now, have you ever experienced that? Because that would seem like to me like it, would, it wouldn't feel natural. Uh, it feels natural enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. The um, Yeah, it's weird. There's, there's also methods of like masking your, your physical senses to make you think that you're walking in a straight line when reality in reality you are actually walking in a circle. So the way they do this is they shift the frames of your visual system by a couple frames to make your body self-correct. Uh, you have to have a large space for this though. So there's size constraints, but basically you're walking straight in the virtual environment, but because the frame in the virtual environment is, you know, forever advancing, I guess to the left, your body corrects to match it. And so you're walking in this big circle in real life. Oh, but it's just tricking you. It's a it's straight line yeah. visually. That yeah. makes sense. So, um, so that's another way. But this, um, in in all those examples, minus the tricking your senses, uh, there are uh, restraint mechanisms to hold you upright. So there are belts that will you know hold you in place. So that way you don't fall over. So Google's really got to master this whole um, anchoring system because. If they don't, then there's potential for disaster in the physical environment and injury. Right? Oh, most so, definitely, yeah. So, um, I uh, to me, there are a couple safety issues that I'm worried about, right? So there's, well, one, I don't know if you've, have you ever been on any of these devices that uh, that are gyroscopic and can 
um, basically keep you upright like a Segway or something where if you lean a certain direction, it will counter lean to keep you upright. Yeah, so I've ridden a one wheel, which acts the same way. Okay, how was that experience for you? It was hard to get to get like a hold of the first time because okay. I, I had a hard time like keeping my balance right and not like kind of like stumbling off type of thing. Oh, really? Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't very simple to get the first ride or whatever. Yeah. There's this other brand that does like these. Uh, I mean, there's like hoverboards don't do it, right? I mean, some brands might, but there's these uh, new roller skates. Uh. I don't know what they're called. They're, they're still making roller skates. Um, I don't know what they're called, man. I saw them in my feed. Uh, they were the October. No, that no. I don't know what they are. Rocket uh, skates. I don't know. They're, they're basically the same thing as this, but not aimed at VR. Oh, okay, just like um, aimed as a motor tra- transportation or some sort of. Fun. Think about think about two little segways attached to your feet. That's basically ah. what they were, uh, and essentially. Um, you know, I, I don't know what these devices feel like where they counteract your um, your balance because that's going to be key here is how do you maintain somebody's balance while they're perceiving something that's not the physical environment, right? And, and how do you mask that appropriately to make them not hurt themselves? Yeah, or I guess for, I don't know, for some people maybe even be afraid of how it's going to, how they're going to feel during it. Cause let's say like something does happen and you did like fall over and it kind of ruined the experience. I mean, how likely are you going to be to try that again? So they almost have right. to really get this right. Um, just in terms of keeping somebody upright within the experience. Yeah. It looks like they have a couple safeguards in this patent to like basically pull you out of VR. If things are looking dicey, um, you can see that at one, one seven zero and the little uh, patent thing there. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't know, man. There's there's a lot of hangups, but if they can get this right, I uh, I I think this could be really cool. So do you think it'll if if they get it right that it'll likely be kind of a better solution than something like an omnidirectional treadmill? Look, part of the problem with uh, a lot of this VR tech is that one, the equipment is expensive, right? VR uh, right now, VR headsets are expensive. Yeah, for the sure. The computers to run the VR is expensive. And then if you go into actually tackling locomotion, VR treadmills are omnidirectional treadmills are ridiculous in price. I mean, like only labs have them, right? Perambulators sure. are getting cheaper and more accessible. I think there's a Virtuix Omni is doing uh like $500 perambulator. So they're fairly affordable. Um but in addition to that cost, you have the um, sort of investment cost of actually getting into the virtual environment. So, you know, you ha- and I have this problem, too. I have a VR headset at home that I seldom use because it's so taxing to actually get in and get the whole thing set up um, and make sure the cameras are all set properly and you know make sure that the tether is working and the everything right so one way we can get around that is to have a battery powered headset right and and then mitigate the lag between the rendering and and that's a whole issue and then you have the issue of actually if you think about the locomotion aspect of it entirely then you have the aspect of well then i have to get into this belt this restraint on this perambulator and i have to open up the thing and get in and put on the right shoes 
Yeah, it seems like there's a, like a high cost of entry just to even set up, much less get in the actual environment and start doing something. And if you can just do a shoe attachment instead of a belt, uh, the high cost of a perambulator, you know, like the storage alone is going to be worth it, right? So you don't have this huge thing sitting in your room. You just have little skates off to the side that you throw on and that's it. And if you can get that and the headset, and the battery powered backpack maybe that's all you need and then you could just you know and some easy way to navigate menus while you're in a virtual environment some easy way to switch back and forth between the virtual and physical environment so if you have like the tracking map to let's say the actual headset instead of the environment capturing like so instead of cameras in this heads in the environment you have cameras in the headset looking at the environment with markers that's a lot easier point of entry because then you can be like this markers over here and then no matter where you put on the headset you're you're mapped. Yeah, and I have um, to worry about like an external camera and all that. We'll just yeah. make it a little quicker. Yeah, so there are definitely ways in which we are going to mitigate that cost of entry. Um, I don't know, man. I, I feel like I could nerd out about all this. But what is, what is like, does this seem like something that you would use from somebody who, um, you've only tried VR a handful of times, right? Yeah, and a, and a lot of it is I just don't, right now I don't see myself investing in it. Only because, like, I, one, I don't play video games that much as I would like to just because of time constraints and, like, trying to balance work-life general stuff. Um, and then trying – and then coupling that with – I'm not – so I'm not really sure what I would use it for outside of that, even though I know there's a lot of applications beyond just playing games with a VR headset and VR right. gear. But the investment of, like we talked about, the computer itself, the headset, and then – like the setup alone, I would har- I feel like I would hardly ever use it. Now, if we start getting a little closer to where, like, like you've talked about, there's enhancements to the headset. Maybe we're I know this is only a patent right now, but maybe Google produces shoes that allow you to really be a little more immersed. I could see myself maybe spending some of the money, but all again, it depends kind of on price and really what I'd be using it for. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know, man. I think this idea is awesome. If we can reduce that barrier to entry, let's do it because I'm, I'm all for it. Most definitely. Yeah. All right. We got one more story. Let's break it down. All right. So thank you, Canada. So they're improving the air travel experience. So air, air transport allows thousands of individuals to connect with their families and others to ex- and explore other parts of the world. And last week, Canada's science and economic development announced the, the launch of the new Center for Air Travel Research. The new center managed by the National Research Council of Canada is the world's first and only facility to study the air travel experience from start to finish, from check-in to terminal to security to boarding to flying and to planning. The Center for Air Travel Research provides the aerospace industry with a flexible collaborative space to develop, integrate, and evaluate airspace technologies, systems, and materials. So this facility will allow companies to evaluate a passenger's complete air travel experience to improve safety, efficiency, and comfort for Canadian travelers and visitors. Nick, I might be moving to Canada if they get this right. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, if you think about it, this will drive not only Canadian airlines, but also national airlines, right? If they set guidelines by which airlines that do business in Canada have to adhere to, then that's a lot of airlines, right? And that will trickle down. So this is good. Um, I'd be curious to get, let's see, are there any comments on this on Slack? I think there were comments. Oh, wait, no, I forgot to mention the comments on the uh, wheels. Oh, anyway. (laughs) But this is cool because if you think about it, they're not just tackling the experience in the airplane. They're they're tackling the experience from 
I want to I want to print out my boarding pass. Um, see, we're we're bringing it back. We're all those references that all we made. the callbacks. Uh, so they're they're looking at this holistically and trying to enhance the experience of the flyer. Uh, and this is this is government backing this, so this is this is awesome. I I'm really digging this. Yeah, it's ma- it makes me wonder like, is it really that big of a problem, or for Canadian passengers that they've like gone to the government to help them kind of tackle it? Um, which I think is a great idea. I mean, I don't understand why it hasn't really been a focus because I know for for me at least in my experience with human factors in aviation has always been from the side of the air traffic controller or a pilot right. trying to optimize and make sure that the transportation part of it is safe. Uh, which makes sense, right? Because we, right. we were dealing with like 200 plus lives at some points uh, getting from place to place. But this would be great. I mean, being able to help facilitate, you know, just checking in to getting on the plane to flying and getting off the plane is will have a major impact on probably the amount of people that travel. So it could increase business, but also they're having a positive experience while you're flying is always a good thing. Yeah, I um, uh, I hope they really do something about the armrests. I think we talked about this before, but there was this design where like the middle seat could rest theirs below the people on the sides that rest theirs above. And it's only like a shift of a couple inches. Oh yeah. It's like, it's old school human factors cast now, but I'm also looking at these, uh, these devices on Amazon. <laughs> Have you seen these? No. What is this? <laughs> they are basically armrest dividers for people. <laughs> Thank goodness. I need that. I feel like I do too. And, uh, I mean, it's sad, but you know, we, we all want kind of our personal space while we're on the plane. And if they can start to uh, basically come up with solutions that will end the problems, like the, the very small problems that we have uh, that are that are difficult to deal with while you're traveling. Traveling is already stressful. Yeah, it's already stressful. And it's it's just not super sanitary either. And, and you're like rubbing a gut up against somebody next to you who you've never met you don't really know so maybe something like that is makes sense but who knows if they got their flu shot or yeah anything yeah and it tends to be it feels like every time i get a plane i don't know about you but everybody around me is sick so having small things that like allow you to have more space to yourself may be helpful maybe not yeah i'm not really sure but i I think it's a great initiative by like the canadian government to try and tackle this because again i feel like the only times i've really seen a lot of effort put into is more of the safety aspect when it comes to pilots and air traffic control yeah and i mean you bring up a great point this is this is a public health issue um too and that's that's good to have government on your side for something like that because if they can mitigate again talking about mitigation i feel like the the theme of this episode is mitigation like how can we mitigate cost with vr stuff how can we mitigate anyway uh yeah i I feel like this is this is great this is gonna make great strides towards uh making it a more comfortable experience not just like we say not just in the cabin but also from ordering tickets online um to basically the the baggage pickup baggage claim or even getting that last mile transportation that we talked about on the show a couple times before you know is that something that this will cover too i mean it seems like it i hope so Um, yeah and especially i'm actually not sure what the kind of autonomous vehicle space looks like in canada so i'm not sure if that's something they're trying to work with but i could see that as a great way to integrate with companies like uber if they exist like a canadian version exists or some branch of uber exists out in canada yeah or even um Oh shoot! I just had something. But even like the the biometric scanning that we talked about yeah. on the show too, like that. Hell, that comes together. To yeah, pl- that's play. so we have the TSA there behind it. You know, if the, if if government can inform the TSA to ha- you know how to basically make it seamless and and less stressful for the individual, I think that stuff's good too. I don't know. This is good all around. Loving it. 
Thank you, Canada, for taking on this giant initiative. Thank you, Canada. All right. Well, Blake, we have one more segment of the show. What do we have? I forgot. It came from. It came from. That's right. It came from Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you topics that the community is talking about. Uh, any subreddit is fair game as long as it relates to the field of human factors and encourages discussion amongst the human factors community. Um, so, Blake, I think we have time for. Let me check the timer. Uh, we got time for two of them. So we want to just take both of them. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I couldn't see one or something. No, we got both of them. Uh, all right, so we'll, we'll just do both of them here. Um, the first one comes from the user experience subreddit from user darn it all the heck. Uh, they go on to write, at what point did you feel highly competent in this field? Blake. This is human factors? <laughs> <laughs> what at what point did I feel highly competent in my field? Yeah. Ah, goodness. Okay, we talked a little bit about <laughs> no, this. It all started when I was five years old. Yeah, when I was twelve, I knew that I would be a great HF practitioner. No, I don't know, man. I've never felt that I'm <laughs> quote unquote highly competent in the human factors field or user experience field or user centered design, whatever you want to call it. Well, that's I, a damn relief. Yeah, I know, because it's it's a constant learning process, and I think yeah. anybody that can try tries to convince you otherwise you should take a second look at that person i mean they're i'm good at certain things like i'm very good at prototyping at talking to users getting feedback and you know making inferences based off of data analysis but i am not gonna sit around and say that i'm the most competent human factors expert there is because it's just it's a work in progress in our field because like one of the articles said like human factors in general has been around for over 60 years. And I mean, it was really only applied in specific domains like the DOD and it's growing. It's moving into places like medical field, like VR design. And so there's, there's no blueprint really for how you apply this science in all these different fields. You kind of have to learn. Yeah. I have never felt competent either. Highly competent. Let's, let's, let's do the highly. Cause I, I do feel competent. It's just, there's, um, Everyone kind of doesn't know what they're doing. And once you realize that, I think it's a lot more comforting. You're better um, off the quicker you realize that. Yeah, I think so too. And and understanding where gaps in other people's knowledge are, right? It's, uh, for me at least, I don't know about you, Blake, but this is a very humbling field um, because I feel like I can approach a problem and say, look, these are the things I'm familiar with and I think this is the best approach for it because X, Y, and Z. And someone else can come in and say, I I think X, Y, and Z won't work because of A, B, and C. And then I come back and say, well, what about D, E, and F? And they're like, okay, well, let's take Z and A and maybe F. There's a lot of alphabeting going on. That's a lot of alphabeting going on. But you get what I'm saying is that it's a field of compromise and there's science to back it up. Um, But, you know, oftentimes usability can be a subjective experience. And so if we have science that informs how humans perform better, then that's one thing. But then when you come to it and, and trying to tackle this novel way of interacting with something, it's no one knows. Well, uh, and I think that's <laughs> the important part of even the idea of prototyping is you build stuff and if it doesn't work, great, because that's the point right. of even doing it. And I think that's what the majority of our field is based on, like putting ideas out there based on the best science, best like research we can do, but ultimately you know, you're at the will of people that are actually going to use a product yeah. or a service. And so you, you take what you know, put it out there and then you make changes based off of that. So I touched on it and I want to kind of expand on it a little bit more, but I think 
I never feel highly competent because as information becomes more and more accessible, there is this problem of having a lot of information to parse through. And so I don't consider myself an expert on anything like even VR. I feel like there's a variety of different uh, subject matter that I could go and research. But I think the thing um, that kind of makes it okay for me to not be an expert in something is that I have the ability to go and research and I have the skills to be able to research something like that and bring back the relevant things to the problem that I'm facing in whatever it is I'm tackling. Right. And I think if you're going to like, I, I don't like the term highly comp competent because that implies that, um, I don't know. It, it, I don't know, man. Like, to me, just, that, that almost implies like that expert level of it does knowledge. Too, yeah. And there's like I have not done you know the ten thousand hours of human factors work right to even say that our UX work or front end development work. I mean, I don't know. I let's say let's say this. I feel confident in my skills to to go research something and bring the research to the table to synthesize that research and say, okay, I believe this is the best option because of research X, Y, and Z says so, uh, for these reasons. And I feel confident in my ability to do that. Um, but I, f I feel like if anyone comes to the table in like an industry, uh, profession and says, Oh, this is the right way to do it because I'm an expert in it. Well, when was the last time you researched it? Like, uh, what, what are other people doing out there in the field? Yeah. I, I don't know. Like I, that's just my thoughts on it. Um, so yeah, I, I the only thing I could, the only way I could use highly competent is I'm highly competent knowing that I can go find and use the skills that I've been taught to right. try and pro solve a problem and not always get it right, but know how to readjust and pivot from what I've learned. Yeah. Anyway, if you're struggling with feeling highly competent in the field, <laughs> don't, don't worry, worry about it. There are others that feel just the same way that maybe, maybe not competent, but I mean, comp, uh, not highly competent, not expert level, but definitely like, you know, feeling the same way. I guess the, the, the way that I would, I would say if somebody's really worried about being highly competent, and you don't feel highly competent. Good. Just keep learning and keep, keep learning. improving. Yeah. It humbles you. That's All it. right. Uh, we got time for one more. So I'm going to go with iron omen. This is uh, also from the user experience subreddit. Uh, so this is Iron Omen is looking for some advice. They recently took a position with a company that has no formal UX on staff beyond themselves. They have uh, been very successful to date with their community. So it's the Department of Defense by consistently doing what the customer asked for. On to my question or their question. Uh, where do you start as a team with of one with a company that may not be receptive to change initially has huge legacy software suite, a lot of UX debt, large backlog of items and new features, uh, being continually requested. I'm trying to get at least one more team member, but I'm sincerely worried that that even that may not be enough. Leaving my company is certainly one path, but not one I prefer. I want to sincerely give it my best effort. Well, with that, uh, we'll be back next week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, that's that's it's a, a tough, tough one. one. Did we just? Did we just? Yeah, Jinx, okay, you owe me right. a Coke. I don't right. drink Coke anymore. Uh, yeah. So, Blake, how do you tackle this um, issue of basically this huge legacy software suite, lots of UX debt? You're one person trying to make a difference. Yeah. So 
uh, I feel like this is all the things I'm going to say are really obvious, but I'm going to say them anyway. Yep. As much as you can try and get that extra team member, because it's going to help your cause to kind of have, you know, two diverse perspectives, potentially walking in, uh, trying to approach the same problem from like, in, in your case, a UX perspective or a human factors perspective. Um, totally understanding that you might not be able to get another person because that's how it goes. Like companies are, are run the way they are and they don't always believe in change. Like you've talked about uh, you're, you bring up a really good point about that companies are not really worth or not really receptive to change. Not and worth you, it. And UX is like a big, a big thing that companies are having to deal with, especially in older fields like, like the medical field, like working in the DOD, um, working with any kind of real legacy software. They know they need you, but they don't know what to do with you. So you're just going to have to continue to make the case of like, you hired me, let me do my job. And this is what I can do. Now you don't have to be very brash about it. You can always kind of tackle it in a way that makes sense based off the stakeholders that you're interacting with. Um, and in this case, it's probably pretty interesting for you because you're probably learning in this field for the DOD, the customer is not always necessarily the end user. Your customer may be a stakeholder or a set of stakeholders or a, or a team of stakeholders, if you will. So it, the only thing that you really can do is continue to evangelize and try and develop a process that you can use. And you're going to have to, I feel like if you want to make a big change and you want to, to like catch up on this UX debt and make a dent in some of these backlog items, it's going to take a go. It's going to take a lot of trying to show that return on investment and what it will do, either through trying to set up user testing or interactions with users with developers present, that kind of stuff. I I feel like you've got a long haul ahead of you, um, but it, it's something that is definitely doable. I mean, I know Nick and I have worked for the DoD in various capacities for a while now, and I mean. I, I don't know where I would be without some of my, my teammates for sure and also some of the leadership that I've had because they really have shown me how how you can interact with stakeholders to kind of make them see the light or ways that you can kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, make them think that it was their idea, that yeah. type of stuff. And it's it's tough. I'm not going to lie to you that it, it's going to be an easy process. Um, but if you feel like you want to be a, a leader in the UX or human factors field, this is a great challenge for you to tackle. I don't know, Nick, what are your kind of thoughts on this? Because this is a hard problem to really even give advice for. I don't know. I feel like I echo a lot of the same sentiments that you had there, Blake. And I think that comes from us actually working at the same company in the same environment uh, on some of the same projects. But honestly, like, yeah, it does come down to, I think you said it best when it comes to making somebody else think that it's their idea um, and then following through with that execution and providing different avenues for solving those problems that you have implanted into somebody else's brain, right? Like I think that's the trick is being able to communicate with the right people and bringing the ROI uh, to those people and, and to kind of prove your worth. It's always evangelizing for, for this type of position, for this type of role. And so I think your best bet is to just kind of, Bring it to the table when you can and maybe even go outside of the box and, and say, look, like, hey, I, I ran some numbers. Um, I ran the numbers. I did the numbers. I did the numbers. Here's, like, how this can improve this product. And, uh, you know, the, the higher up the chain you can get, especially in the Department of Defense, the better. Um, if you can have somebody at the top level evangelizing for what you do, then you can see you can definitely see that trickle down. 
Um, and I, I will say that's been like one success story for us is like, if, if we can get at the top level, then the results are definitely, you can definitely see them at all levels. The one, one last thing I want to point out for this specific case is in the DOD of all like the legacy, you know, industries you could be working in, it is going to be the hardest and the slowest to enact change in, but you have to keep kind of hammering at it to get it done and do not, and this is something Nick hit on in the last question, but like, don't let yourself get discouraged by hearing, like, if you bring up ABC and they say, no, I think it's X, Y, and Z or whatever it may be, (laughs) like be prepared to have people shoot down the ideas that you have and be ready to understand what their ideas are, figure out ways that you can test them and prove that either what you, what you had originally proposed or something completely different from both ideas is what's going to work best. I mean, it's, it's just kind of a battle and you can do it. Sit down, be humble. All right, that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the stories this week. Uh, If you like them, thank Mateo. If you don't like them, Thank Mateo. Thank Mateo. Uh, for the rest of you, you can join the discussion on our Slack or follow us on any of our social media channels at Attractors Podcast. If you like what you hear and want to support the show or want to hear about our uh, Black Mirror commentary, you can check us out. Leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice or consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, and of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnstor for holding down the fort while I was gone. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about VR roller skates? You guys can talk to me about VR roller skates anytime in our Slack, but you can also find me on Twitter at DontPanicUX. Special thanks to Jeff Olson for our video editing this week and all weeks. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Please take our survey about HFES 2018. And uh, please enter that contest for 2019 annual membership. Um, thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. It depends. You know, for two weeks gone, I, th- I don't think that was that bad. That was pretty good. It was a win. It was a win. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.